0: And I got to this point where I was like, geez, like what if we could build out tools that would actually dramatically lower the cost of data collection, data acquisition at a global scale.
1: Hi, my name is Daniel and welcome to the Mapscaping podcast. This is a podcast about companies and individuals that are doing incredible things in the geospatial world. Today I'm talking to Ariel. Ariel is the founder of Hive Mapper. Hive Mapper is a system which lets you upload video footage to the cloud, which is then automatically processed into usable geographic data. It has a whole bunch of uses. It's a really interesting technology and it is definitely scalable. I hope you enjoy the interview. Well, today I'm talking to Ariel, and he comes to us from HiveMapper, and they're doing something really interesting over there. But first, could you just tell us a little bit about your background, Ariel?
0: Sure, sure. Um, So I started off in the mapping world uh, when I was in Yahoo. So Yahoo Maps, Yahoo Search, um, we looked up and realized that about 20 to 35% of our queries were all local mapping address-related, and so there was a very, very strong push to dramatically improve um, all of the mapping local-related queries for Yahoo Search. And so I got very deeply involved and fell in love with, with local and maps from that entire process about, geez, now like more than 10 years ago. Um, and what I started to realize was just how inordinately expensive it was to create maps, to create local information, but more importantly, to create it fresh. Uh, and maintain the the freshness associated with this data at a global scale. And, um, you know, frankly, I, I would go to the Yahoo exec team and start to make these pitches for, hey, we need to invest and we need to invest in massive amounts of data. And I continuously got knocked down. It was just like the types of prices that we were talking about and the types of costs was, frankly, just too much for them to stomach. And that was just deeply frustrating because I could see, how much some of our competitors like Google were investing in this. And I got to this point where I was like, geez, like what if we could build out tools that would actually dramatically lower the cost of data collection, data acquisition at a global scale. And so it was just around that time that the iPhone and the Android got going. And I said, well, why don't we turn all of these devices that people now have that have cameras that have great input mechanisms as basically this like mobile smartphone army of data collectors and financially incentivize them to go around and update maps and update this information for us. And rather than do it at Yahoo, I started a company called GigWalk to do exactly that. And we very quickly signed up. Most of the major mapping companies Um, that they would put in what they were what we refer to as little gigs you know pay pay somebody two bucks to verify whether or not the stop sign had been updated pay somebody three dollars to go in this neighborhood and update all the one-way streets and this was about 2010 and we very quickly like started to grow hundreds of thousands of gigs in the system all these kind of people doing these gigs collecting this data and that business started to, at some point, kind of hit a wall, frankly, where just like the number of customers that we would have globally was relatively small. And so we then expanded out to other verticals and it kind of grew from there. Um, but at a certain point, I was like, hmm, you know what? I, I think there's a, maybe fundamentally a, an, an even better approach to solving this problem of how do you create maps and refresh them at scale? And so that's when we started HiveMapper. And so HiveMapper takes video, ultimately LiDAR, can automatically build maps from any moving video camera uh, and builds those maps in three dimension. But more importantly, in addition to just building the maps, it tells you what's changed. So it tells you there's no longer a street sign here. This building has been destroyed and there's a new construction project and that construction project is now um, has a new building there at 30 feet tall, Um, it can tell you the terrain has changed. And so fundamentally, it's taking this idea that there's all these video cameras, ultimately all these LiDAR sensors out in the world, and how can we ingest all that data from all these new sensors and put it to use, right? Put it to use in terms of really helping people understand how our physical world is changing, and then how that impacts them. Whether you're in the logistics business, whether you're in the intelligence business, whether you're in defense, whether you're a local city uh, planner or operator, whether you're in oil and gas. There's just hundreds of different use cases, and we can talk about some of those. But so that's that's my my journey so far uh, over the last uh, ten or twelve years.
1: It so, uh, sounds really impressive. It sounds like a um, that gig what was it gig work you you called it
0: uh, gig walk so you would walk. walk to gig yeah. yeah yeah it sounds
1: like you invented the meta- mechanical turk of, of mapping there
0: yes yes it was, it was like kind of the mobile mechanical turk that we, we definitely got um, you know when we were explaining to people if you knew what mechanical turk was it was like oh okay so you guys like the mobile version of that and so I think that was like a pretty good kind of pivot for people from a minds frame perspective
1: yeah. And like, if we could just um, go back into that just for a second there, the problem with that was that you couldn't, there was limited number of people interested in that kind of data or was it hard to uh, have enough people to update the data and that's why you moved on to, vid- to video to other sources?
0: Yeah, good, great question. So uh, I think there was a couple issues. One is the fundamentally, I think it was a customer issue, right? The number of people that would pay for just raw data, um, Um, you know, was maybe like globally, you know, 40 to $50 million of kind of recurring revenue. So what would happen is like you you spend a lot of time getting a customer. They'd be like, I love this. I have this project. This is great. You know, and then they would spend, I'm just going to make, you know, $50,000 on a project and then they'd go away for like 18 months and then come back with like another $75,000 project. So to get them into some sort of annual package, where it was recurring revenue, that was a big challenge for us.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, so then you moved on to HiveMapper and you talked about using cameras, video cameras especially, as, and you talked about using um, cell phones as well. Or um, I might be mixing the two things up there. But anyway, video cameras was a huge input to HiveMapper. Is this, yeah. in, is this any kind of video camera? Is it a it Does it have to have geotags? What, what's the yeah. What's the requirements?
0: Yeah, so, so um, we started off with cameras from drones initially. So that was like the very, very first version of Hive Mapper, which was, you know, drones kind of have this nice perspective on the earth. Um, you can orient their camera looking down. So the camera does have to be at – the camera has to be moving, and the camera needs to be uh, looking or looking at the angle at a movement. So let's say it's a drone or an airplane, you want to be like – Forty-five degrees off a of nader, roughly, um, and you know the the thing that's also pretty challenging in terms of the technology is if the camera is moving around aggressively, right? Uh, like it's panning there, it's zooming there. That makes it harder to actually build a nice consistent map. So there's definitely things that you can do from a collection perspective that improve the quality of your map, and we try to we try to provide people. But we've also seen situations where somebody uploads a video. It's a longish video, like 20, 30 minutes. And of that, there's maybe only five minutes that are actually mappable. So we are able to like automatically determine of that 25-minute video, here's the five minutes that are actually like high-quality map. And then we just kind of discard the other 20 minutes.
1: As drones, like the... The technology around drone mapping is improving day to day, I would imagine. And I'm assuming I'm not, that there must be some sort of standards involved now, that there are some international standards. Hey, when when you shoot data from a drone, then it comes in this format, it has this standard. Are, are all these things, are they helping you or are they sort of divergent? Is everybody making their own standards, their own formats, their own sort of technology yeah. for drone mapping?
0: On... Um- yeah, so the, those standards definitely help. There's no doubt about that. That, you know, the metadata that comes with a video, for example. So, um, you know, whether you're flying a drone at 15,000 feet or flying an airplane or flying a commercial drone at 400 feet, there are a set of standards in terms of the metadata that's coming off of those drones or, more importantly, coming off of those video cameras. And so we're able to ingest the video and then also extract out all of the metadata that comes with that video. And that's very helpful in terms of just orienting Hive Mapper to, okay, this was captured, you know, at this part of San Francisco, at this time of day. And, you know, this was the kind of camera that was being used. And so all of that metadata is definitely extremely valuable and extremely useful in terms of assisting our technology to build a high-quality map. So, yeah, no doubt about that. Um, I would say that the... Fundamentally, the problem with the commercial drone industry right now is that you can only fly these things for 15, 20, 30 minutes at best. Um, and that's just not, you're not going to build a very significant map. So what you have is this problem of like somebody flying a drone in 15, 20 minutes and then it's like, ah, geez, I got to bring it back down, swap the battery, you know, and then do that entire thing again. And so what we've seen is, is that in terms of actually building maps and doing that at scale, things like... Higher flying drones that obviously the military and intelligence operations use, as well as airplanes, just can cover a ton more ground and oftentimes do that even more cost effectively than a commercial drone, just because of the limited flight time that those things have today.
1: And those um, the higher flying vehicles, they're still providing the same resolution or better, maybe.
0: Uh, it depends. So it depends kind of what, what type of camera they have. I mean, some of the cameras that are flying on these airplanes and these higher flying drones are, are, are exquisite. You know, they you're talking about cameras that are, you know, each 250,000 to $500,000 a pop. Um, you know, some, if you look at some of these kind of military drones, the most expensive piece of equipment on those drones is by far the video camera. Um, and so, yeah, you can get some an amazing, you know, resolution on those with, you know, a great zoom. It does limit kind of how you can fly and so forth. Um, but fundamentally, like, you, you know, we've seen there's actually a map that can, on our website that you can check out, which was captured with an aircraft flying at 15,000 feet over the Chevron refinery here in the San Francisco Bay Area. And the map is fantastic. It geo registered to our map at roughly 35 uh, centimeters accuracy. So that just gives you a sense of just how good of a quality of map you can build and the kind of accuracy that you can achieve from a higher flying air, uh, aircraft.
1: That was actually one of my next questions. Like, I, I'm fascinated by the, this idea of using video as an input to a map. Like, we're all used to maps being static. So the idea that that um, video like a a dynamic thing can turn into this sort of static map and be updated so frequently and even that um, the idea that the metadata isn't it sounds like it's not necessary as such like it sounds like it's a good to have a nice to have but not necessary for you so I think yeah I think that's amazing that side of it but yeah so it leads definitely to some questions around accuracy.
0: Yeah, so thirty-five centimeters is kind of the definitely right now. Uh, without using any sort of ground control points, just the video, um, we can achieve thirty-five centimeters. If there, and there are ways to improve that and get that down even further. Um, you know, the number of use cases that exist, you know, beyond you know where, where their requirements are like for five or ten centimeters, definitely exist. Um, You know, construction world, etc, where you're looking at very, very precise measurements that you need. But there's a ton of use cases where it's like, yeah, 35 centimeters, that's like so much better than satellite, so much fresher than satellite. Um, And I don't have to deal with any of the cloud cover issues that you're going to have when you're dealing with satellite imagery. Um, One really interesting thing, I just wrote about this, and it's fascinating. So if you look at all the satellite imagery that's generated on a daily basis across the world, it's roughly 300 to 400 terabytes of satellite imagery per day. But if you look at all of the content that is coming from kind of all these next generation sensors, I refer to them as VLR, so that is video lidar radar. Um, that is roughly today two hundred thousand terabytes per day. So, yeah. So even so, well, you know, even if even you say, oh, reason. geez, the satellite data order of magnitude is off by five, right? So let's increase that to you know, 1,500 terabytes a day. And in in the order of magnitude of of the VLR is off by like 5X, right, as well. They're just not even in the same ballpark in terms of the amount of content that these new sensors are generating. And LiDAR hasn't even been fully deployed, right? LiDAR data, as it gets into more and more cars, as radar gets into more and more cars, as video gets into more and more cars, is going to fundamentally change
1: those numbers in dramatic ways. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. Like the amount of data being produced just sounds in, incredible. But I guess it it also, what do we do with that data? Like today, remember five years ago, we all ran around talking about big data and how it was going to change the world. And then most organizations found out they were just drowned in data. They collected everything they could and ended up drowning in it and couldn't do anything with it. So it's that, but it sounds like you've found a way of fixing that. Yeah. So I'm assuming this process is relatively automatic. I have a drone flying around or I have a, a video that I want to get to you guys somehow. How do I do that? Do I send it to you or can I upload it somewhere? And then, then what's the process after that in terms of before uh, until I can see it on a map?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So great question. So, um, you know, the simple way is you just drag and drop those video files into Hive Mapper. So you go to HiveMapper.com. You just upload, you go upload videos, you know, kind of very similar to Dropbox. You take all the video files that you want. You know, if there's attached metadata files, you put those in there as well. And then you just hit upload and then you go. And so then you come back 45 minutes to an hour later and you have a new refresh map with all the change detections visualized for you as well for that specific area that, um, that, that we mapped for you. And we'll automatically, so there's nothing that you as a user need to do Um, other than just wait 45 minutes. So uh, we'll automatically say, okay, you know, you gave us 30 minutes of video. We were able to actually map uh, roughly 15 minutes of it. Here are the results. Oh, by the way, the other 15 minutes, it failed. And here's why it failed. Um, And so we'll also give you feedback in terms of, for that next time around, here are the reasons that this specific part of the video failed. Um, And so that's fundamentally the process for some of our larger customers, they also they do what's referred to as bulk uh, video upload, where they just point HiveMapper at a directory where they're automatically dropping all the video that they're generating. And then HiveMapper is just continuously looking for any new files in that directory, and then we just automatically load them.
1: And and how do you deliver that data back to the customer? How do I see it again? Is it a, a web service that I can drag into my existing GIS or is, is HiveMapper is it a platform? Is it an online platform?
0: It's an online web based platform. So you just go to HiveMapper. You know, once once you create your account, then it's simply like you know you go to HiveMapper and you access all of your uh, your maps as well as all the visualization for the maps, all the change detection in a web browser. So there's no additional software client that you then need to go download to be able to do it. And so we really try to provide an all-in-one experience from the actual map engine that produces the map to the map itself and all the the interface and all the features that you need to visualize and analyze your map.
1: A lot of organizations don't want to give their data away. So... Is there a room for, like in HiveMap on the web web platform there, the web-based client, is, is there room to to drag in a service that I have from my own organization, but I don't really want to make it public or deliver that data to you?
0: Yeah, so there's. we go even one step further. So if you really want to make all your data private, uh, we provide HiveMapper Colony, which is a, a product of ours, which is entirely self-hosted. That means is... You're actually downloading the software, installing it on your own servers that are run within your organization. So if you're extremely sensitive to this video, this map data that I'm generating is so proprietary, um, so classified that nobody else can see it, um, and then you can run HiveMapper entirely disconnected from the internet. And so that's Hive Mapper Colony if you can use uh, a cloud-based product a saas-based product then you can upload your video like we were describing before use hivemapper in a totally private context so that would be akin to saying like hey i'm going to sign up for salesforce you know and put all my software you know put all my customers and leads and opportunities and contacts into salesforce obviously no other business is going to have access to that other than you um, and so that works very similarly with our cloud-based product. Um, and then the third option is like, hey, you know, I am the state of California offices of emergency services, and it's actually really helpful as I create this maps to educate the citizens of California on what's happening um, as I'm fighting these fires, as I'm dealing with mudslides in Santa Barbara. I'm mapping, and I'm learning about what's happening in these cities and how these cities are being impacted by these natural disasters. I'd act, as I create these maps that are fresh and that visualize these changes that are occurring, it's actually really helpful for this, you know, the constituents and the citizens uh, of Santa Barbara to be able to see that. And so they want to make those those maps public.
1: absolutely absolutely um you mentioned a few interesting things there like uh, right at the start we talked a little bit about change detection and as soon as you said that i thought this would be fantastic for hazard mapping you know those situations where you need to process data you need to get that overview fast and you need to be able to update it you know with drones and video and hive map it sounds like you've got a really good solution there is hazard mapping like the primary focus of, of this uh technology
0: um, I wouldn't say that use case is the primary focus. So I, the, we refer to it as damage assessment. You know, fundamentally, same same idea, right? Hazards. Um, but yeah, so the first responder market, you know, that is dealing oftentimes with these natural disasters where the earth is constantly changing, and you know, a- a- as we're dealing with climate change, that unfortunately is becoming a bigger and bigger problem for us. Um, and so, absolutely, the ability to understand if I'm fighting a fire, if I'm dealing with mudslides or an earthquake, and I'm a first responder, I got to understand very, very quickly the extent of the damages. Because once I understand the extent of the damages, then I can make resource allocation decisions, right? Or I can like request more budget for ac- actually dealing with that. But I got to know, is there 100 residential parcels that have been entirely damaged? Or are there 500? Um, and today, that process of collecting and verifying that information and then being able to go to the governor or the president or whoever and saying, I need an additional billion dollars because here's the extent of the damage. You need data to stand on. Um, You can't just like make these numbers up and request budget against that. So getting that information quickly and making sure that it's accurate information is critical to making those budget requests to deal with these hazards and these natural disasters. And so that's really where Mapper comes in and helps. Um, that, that's, that's for starters. And then the second part of it is, okay, now I got the money. I got the resource to deal with this problem. Where do I put them, right? Um, is that road to that piece of critical infrastructure, is that road still accessible or has it been damaged? Um, all my critical infrastructure, what is the extent of the damage? you know, being, you know, showing somebody an image of a before and after and then saying, hey, go figure out whether or not there's any damages. Very, very, very time consuming. And so there's a ways now that we can automate that where we can automatically discover the changes and really help these analysts and these people who are looking for this to hone in on where are the real problems rather than just saying, you know, go, here's a map of the before and here's the map of the after, figure it out.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that sounds like, um, all sound like really, really good use cases for, for a technology like this. What about some of the other use cases that you mentioned? You you said that maybe this wasn't the primary focus of, of Hive Mapper.
0: Um, so I think on the defense world, I think that's where the, you know, frankly, was not the initial focus of Hive Mapper. But they came knocking on our doors and said, "Listen, you know, we are huge. Um, a, we have a ton of video, right? And so we have aircraft that are flying around. We have drones that are flying around." And we don't use this video very well today, right? And so how can we actually make better decisions, you know, separate good guys from bad guys um, and do that in a much more efficient way and a much more precise way, right? We don't want to hurt the good guys. We want to just like focus in on the bad guys here. How can we do that and do that faster and more efficiently and more safely? And so they came to us saying, hey, there's a really interesting use cases here for what you guys have built, We would like to dig in with you to to use your software to help us with that. And so that was a use case where it really opened our eyes to in the gov defense world, intelligence world. They are very lean in forward when it comes to geospatial technologies. So I don't know if you know the history of Google Earth, but Google Earth prior to it being Google Earth was actually an acquisition that Google made by the, of a product by the name of Keyhole. And Keyhole was, you know, kind of the, the – well, it is what, what Google Earth is today, um, but what, many of its early customers were in kind of the gov intelligence world, you know, was used pretty heavily – Around the uh, Afghanistan War and the Iraq War to really help them visualize kind of what was happening, um, and so it's a great example of kind of this new technology that ultimately found kind of a very large vertical for itself in the gov and vertical in the gov and kind of intelligence world.
1: I do actually remember that. I remember wasn't that where KML came from, the Keyhole Markup Language, or something like that. It, it, when exactly. you're talking there, I wondered too if something like this couldn't be very useful in terms of making machine maps for machines, and base maps for autonomous yeah. vehicles. I mean, if you're talking change detection, in my mind anyway, autonomous vehicles will have some kind of base map that they navigate after, and then they'll of course have their own sort of navigation systems and make decisions on the fly. But having that base map would really speed up the um, the process, I think.
0: No, absolutely. So so today. Um, we focus a lot of our work on autonomy, you know, supporting autonomous systems um, that are aircraft based, right? Drones and so forth. Um, that's kind of version one of it. And the reason for that is because currently HiveMapper um, builds maps at roughly 30 centimeters, absolute accuracy. Um, and so that is by far, you know, more than enough for the world of autonomous aircraft. Um In the world of ground-based vehicles, we would need to dramatically improve our absolute accuracy and get it down to, you know, sub-five centimeters to be very, very relevant in that world. Um, And so there's additional products and technologies that we would have to do to support autonomous vehicles. Um, It hasn't been a focus of ours, frankly, uh, for a lot of reasons. One is there's a ton of people who are trying to crack that market. Um, and in my view, it's still on the earliest side um, in terms of, you know, getting in and like there's probably like, you know, right now 10 customers that you could realistically sell mapping technology to in the autonomous vehicle, maybe, maybe 30, right? But it, it, the number of customers that you actually have that can write meaningful, meaningful checks to you is not huge. Um, You know, that will change ultimately as more and more things become autonomous in the world. You know, I, I expect those numbers to grow, you know, pretty significantly. But as of right now, I think like we're very much focused on business organizations who need, require fresh geospatial data. And so those exist, you know, across, you know, local cities, states, federal governments, oil and gas, you know, real estate construction. There's just like a ton of verticals that can leverage this data, um, which gets me to another point, which is I think like we as an industry haven't done a great job in, uh, in terms of serving business users, professional users. Like if you go into most organizations today that use a tool like Esri, there's like, okay, here's my GIS people. There's five, you know, maybe 10 of those folks in some of these larger organizations and they're your GIS specialists. Um, But it seems silly, right? So you go to them and you're like, hey, I have this question, you know, and then they go away for two or three or four days and then they come back and they try to like, you know, give you some data that they've crunched using the Esri tool or some other geospatial technologies. That just seems crazy to me because the amount of data that exists out there that's geospatial in nature that these users could have access to that they could leverage on a daily basis is tremendous. And so the idea that there's this gatekeeper of these like GIS specialist folks that need to kind of divvy out the data to individual users seems like a huge missed opportunity for us as an industry. Um, like today, if I want marketing analytics, you know, whether I'm in sales or business operations, or I, I can, you know, there's plenty of SaaS based tools out there that will tell me and give me a good understanding of what's happening with our marketing analytics. I don't have to go to a specialist to get all this data. So, we want to break down, help break down some of these walls to just make this data more accessible to more people within these organizations.
1: Yeah, and I agree with you on a lot of what you said there. And I think you make some really good points about the geospatial industry. So how how do you see this going as as an industry then? Geospatial, what are we talking about? Are we going to break it down so much that we're going to talk about the end of that sort of GIS group in, in organizations, the end of the, the specialist in-house? Are we talking about um, sort of drag-and-drop services that sort of fit into to any old visualization software?
0: Yeah, so I think there's there's two really important things. Well, there, there's probably a couple of really important things that are creating fertile ground for us to rethink how we deliver geospatial information to to the enterprise. So one is I think we covered it, which is all these VLR sensors, right? Video LiDAR radar that are just out there in the world. So for example, if you're, you know, a facilities manager of a campus, you know, you could put, for example, dash cam um, video cameras on all of your cars, all of your trucks, etc that are driving around the campus on a daily basis. All that video can then be ingested into a tool like Hivemapper and put to use, right? When I mean put to use it's like what's going on right? is this is the awning on this building leaning is the flagpole on this area? is that broken? Is the you know parking meters over here did somebody knock into it and it's being, and it's destroyed right? Um, all of this information can be fed in to a tool like HiveMapper, and is just being passively collected and processed so that the facilities manager can start to prioritize, here's all the issues that are occurring in, my, in and around my campus. But here's the thing. I think the other thing is, is that users don't need pretty maps. And you know, pretty maps, I think we've gotten as an industry addicted to pretty maps. And pretty maps are awesome, right? We all love staring at them, but we all love staring at them for like five minutes, if that, right? We're like, oh my God, that's beautiful. That's gorgeous. It's eye candy. And then it's like, uh, and so what? And so I think if we can get away from thinking of maps as purely these beautiful things, uh, which they definitely are, but refocus the conversation to say, no, 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 the really the important bits of information that you're going to extract from a map are presented to you almost like in a spreadsheet form where you can go through and say, hey, you know, this stop sign in this part of your campus, somebody ran into it. You know, the awning over here was detected that it was leaning or falling, and that happened over here yesterday. And so you can almost get a spreadsheet of all the potential issues that you're dealing with as a facilities manager, and then you can start to make decisions and start to prioritize against that spreadsheet. The fact that it was all derived because you have these sensors and you have this mapping technology is almost beside the point, right? But ultimately, like the things that the end users are actually comfortable with is like work orders and spreadsheets, you know, not pretty maps.
1: That's, that's a really interesting way of looking at it, I think, because the mapping industry is sort of based on that idea that visualization of data is better. It makes it more accessible to people. And what you're saying is you're, you're going the other way now and i think that's a really interesting thought because in some ways you you're you're absolutely right i mean beautiful perfectly visualized maps perfectly visualized data you can't really use it for very much you know what i mean you can't plug it into your spreadsheet you can't put it into another system as it's, it's just for people you know it's just for that visual effect so that's a really interesting thought that um that is going to turn on its head now and we're going to go the other way and we're way more interested in getting an answer. Don't show me the map, just show me the answer.
0: Yeah. The only reason you can do that, by the way, now, I think that's a is because of machine learning capabilities. Uh, You couldn't do that eight years ago. Um, And so that's the thing that's been changing is the underlying technology to do this type of stuff now exists, whereas... You know, most of the other mapping companies were dealing with a different set of technology tools that were available to them, so they obviously like prioritized things like visualization. So I think that that made sense in its time.
1: But do you think is it the technology that slowed us down, or is it the culture around mapping? Is it the understanding that okay, you know, for a wee while, maybe not a wee while ago, but ten years ago, there was this um, saying like spatial is special. You know, I mean, this is something different. We need to treat this differently. And do you think is it so? So my question is again: Is it the technology that's holding us back, or is it that sort of understanding of that this spatial data, this mapping data, is somehow different from every other kind of data?
0: I, I definitely think it's it's a um, you know maps were always like even when they were in their physical form, these things that you opened up and that you looked at, right? And so and, and they were very you know, and some of those physical maps are incredibly gorgeous. And so I think that was the starting point for maps. Um, And then it carried over into the digital world. And we just made those maps, you know, even prettier, you know, we made them, you know, they have all these graphics on them with things moving. And so it's like, it created that ooh and that ah moment. And so I do think that, yeah, there's a culture of creators that are always looking for that positive feedback. And so when you are doing a demo or creating something on, you know, a website or whatever, and you put out a beautiful map. You're gonna get those oohs and the ahs and the reshares and all that kind of stuff. And so that is part of that feeding cycle that encourages more of that. Um, So I do think culturally it's gonna take, you know, forces take a step back and be like, well, maybe that's not actually the most useful thing as we start to think about getting this data into the hands of not, you know, 10% of enterprise users, but in the hands of 75% of enterprise users. And that to get, you know, from 10% to 75% of enterprise users is going to require us to take a different approach. And a, and, 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 a, and so I don't think we can continue to do the same thing over and over. Uh, and we've probably, like, beaten that horse to death in terms of, you know, pretty visualizations. Uh, in terms of the technology, yeah, I do think that there was a technology limitation there for sure in terms of being able to extract this data at scale, that's really meaningful and relevant. I don't think that technology was very good or it exists or it was even financially viable to get at that just because of the processing and compute require uh, compute requirements. So I do think there was also a technology limitation there for sure.
1: If we could just stay on the subject of that sort of um, the GIS gatekeeper just for a second. Um, if I was going to university now, really interested in geography, GIS, and, and wanted to go down that path, what kind of advice would you give me?
0: I would I would actually go down the path of, so I think there's two parts of this. I would get deep into things like machine learning um, and machine vision technology, so very computer science heavy. Um, focused. And then the other part of it is design um, and design thinking um, because this goes back to trying to get us out of just thinking of maps as pure visualizations and starting to think of them as almost something else. Um, And I think if we can force the younger generation to kind of rethink even the core metaphors or underlying objects of what constitutes a map, I think we're going to be able to push mapping technology further and further ahead. And so those are the two dis- disciplines that I would focus on. And, you know, depending upon your personality, you may lean towards one more versus the other. But I think both of those things are required to really build um, the next generation of, of mapping and geospatial products.
1: Uh, thanks very much for your thoughts on that, by the way. I really appreciate that. It's uh, always interesting to hear other people's opinions. And I have to admit, I, I agree. I think if we're going to do this at scale, it, we're not just going to be able to sit and you know choose the tools one by one in, in ESRI, for example, in ArcGIS. That, that's not going to happen. We need something else. If we could just come back to this idea of data yeah. collection again, if that's yeah. right with you. Yeah. I find that like, I'm, I'm really fascinated by the, the idea of using video. Um, but yeah. we also talked about using LIDAR. We talked about using radar. Yeah now in the last few years we've seen an incredible leap forward in terms of what a camera even on a cell phone can do and i'm assuming in terms yeah. of what drone cameras can do now like i'm assuming that technology is is moving even faster are we going to get to the yeah. point in terms of mapping the kind of mapping that you're doing and the kind of mapping we're going to need to do at scale if this is going to work where we're just going to jump right over lidar and radar where they're not going to be used anymore are they going to be seen as an old mapping technology soon
0: That's a good question. Um, it depends who you ask. (laughs) So the advantage of of video cameras is that they're ubiquitous. Um, you know, they have the color. So I I just got a new car and it has like this amazing front facing and back facing camera. And I'm, I'm just curious. I fundamentally just don't know yet like where all that video goes. Is it destroyed? Is it sent back to the car manufacturer Um, But that video that exists on my car is extraordinarily valuable. Um, And so, you know, being able to ingest all that and build maps from that would be extraordinarily useful. So, But getting to your question of, no, I don't think that um, LIDAR is going, I don't think we're going to skip over LIDAR is the short answer. I think LIDAR is going to get cheaper. I think it's going to get, you know, deployed into millions upon millions of cars. That seems pretty inevitable to me um and there's advantages of lidar over over camera um you know i think it it operates in in many different kinds of environments the precision and the accuracy of it today at least is significant um you know it can cut through vegetation unlike a car so if you're dealing with you know roads or you know even collecting from above and you're in very dense vegetation areas um, the technology as it exists today for a video camera is just not going to be as effective as building maps from LiDAR. So there's a lot of advantages of LiDAR where I don't think we're going to skip over that in any time soon.
1: I tend to agree. I, I, I think, anyway, in terms of data collection, the future is, like, multi-channel. I don't think it's, it's just one thing. I think people are going to have to focus more and more on all the different available channels in terms of data collection. So, And then for me, anyway, the question becomes more, how can we make them work together?
0: Yeah, no, that, that's exactly it. And, like, so we – like, anytime you upload a video to HiveMapper, just going back to the whole, like, how does HiveMapper work thing, you upload video – we are automatically pulling in all available LIDAR that we have for that area because we want to combine the maps that we create from the video with existing LIDAR that we already have for that specific area. And by the way, there's been a ton of LIDAR collections you know, throughout the U.S., throughout Europe, throughout many parts of the world. This, this LIDAR data exists. We've aggregated a ton, ton of it such that we can combine LIDAR data with your video uh, or, or with the maps that you generate from your videos into one single map, and so I, I agree. Like, they're, they're, it's never going to be an either or. From a customer perspective, that's not what you want. From a customer perspective, it's like if there's great lidar data there, then and it's going to help me get to a faster, better answer. Great, use it. Right? If there's great radar data there, great, use it. Um, so I just don't think the customer is is religious about this stuff. They're just like, I need a freaking answer to my question.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. And I can't imagine them caring. They're like, just give me the best answer. Thank you. Don't bore me with the details. Just do the thing. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I remember. That. Yeah, I, I remember talking to this one customer and he's like, you know, he, it was so clear to him that he just did not care at all about like how the technology worked. And I was like, it was somewhat refreshing because like we're as mapping technologists, designers, we think about this stuff all day long. But from, from his perspective, he had like 15 minutes to talk to me. And he's like, here's what I need. I don't care. Just go get it, right?
1: <laughs> fair enough. Like, what, why bog yourself down on the details? That's fair enough. And, you, yeah. and the thing is, I guess people are paying you their, you know, go be the expert. Do the thing. Give me the, right, give exactly. me the answer. I know that we're, we're coming to the end of our time together. Um, just before we, we say goodbye, can you tell me what, what is the future of HiveMapper? We talked about a lot of things around the geospatial industry, but if yeah. we go, go back to HiveMapper like specifically where are you going to be in two years or five years what are we going to see from you guys
0: yeah so going back to that transition from satellite imagery to these vlr sensors we're at the very very beginning of that you know to you to steal a line from jeff bezos like it definitely feels like very much like day one and i can say that with a straight face on like like e-commerce or something like that right um Yeah, it feels very much like day one. And I think what we've seen is is that over the last, if I would have started this company, um, you know, five years ago, like it would have been super, super slow in the early days. And now we're seeing that it's picking up. And the reason that it's picking up is because all of this data that exists on video cameras, on this LiDAR data is looking for our home. Today, it's not used. And the customers are like, I collected this data I know there's better uses for it. You know, if you show up and you show them the uses for this data that oftentimes they have already collected or are collecting, that's a win. That's a big win for them. But you do need to match them and spend the time and show them, like, here's how all this data that you already have or are collecting can actually be useful in the context of a map, but more importantly, with answers to your specific information. So where do we want to be in two, three, four, five years from now is, you know, we want to be in a situation where we are the predominant place where all of this data goes. And where you know, 10s of 1000s of organizations are getting answers to their questions on a daily basis and running their cities better running their organizations better, as a result of getting all this data fresh delivered to them on an hourly, if not 20 minute basis.
1: Amazing. Sounds like a bright future. Hey, um, just before we say goodbye, where can we go to to learn more about you?
0: Uh, Head over to HiveMapper.com. So Hive as in a beehive uh, and then Mapper, HiveMapper.com. And there's a ton of stuff out there, a ton of blogs. Contact us if you have questions. We'd love to hear from folks out there in terms of things that they're doing in this
1: world. Fantastic. And, And I'll be sure and link all that up in the show notes so people can find you from there. Ariel, thank thank you you so much for coming along today and talking to me. I really appreciate it.
0: Appreciate it.
1: Well, that's the end of the interview. Thank you so much for listening. Um, Personally, I really enjoyed talking to Ariel. I thought he had some really interesting ideas on the geospatial industry and where we were going and what it was going to take to get there. I also really enjoyed hearing about HiveMapper. I think it's an incredibly interesting technology that he's built there, and I can see a lot of different use cases for it. A transcript of this podcast will be available at mapscaping.com forward slash blogs forward slash podcast. You're also more than welcome to reach out to us at Mapscaping. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or email us at info at mapscaping.com. Thanks so much for listening. We'll have a new podcast for you soon.